Lesson 7 for January 6-12, to 12, Jesus' Teachings and the Great Controversy. Sabbath afternoon, February 6. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus here on earth, but we thank you for his overall life where he was involved in the creation, but he provided the recreation with the salvation that he brought through his life and death here on the the earth. And Lord, as we study the conflict that occurs between Christ and Satan in the life of his ministry today, through this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's read that again, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When we think of the great controversy theme, we tend to think of it in grand overarching terms. That is, it's a big picture view. It can be called a meta-narrative, a story that covers and explains a large portion of reality as opposed to a local narrative or story that explains something much more limited in scope. For instance, Paul Revere's famous ride is a local narrative, in contrast to the much grander and larger one of the American Revolution itself. And yet, however grand and all-encompassing the great controversy theme is, and however immense the issues, it is played out daily, here on earth, in our own lives, in how we relate to God, to temptation, and to others. Just as people's daily existence is impacted, sometimes to a great degree by the grander and bigger events of politics and economics, each of us faces the same from the great controversy as well. In this week's lesson, we will look at some of Jesus' teachings on very down-to-earth and practical matters as we struggle to know and do God's will amid the great controversy. Sunday, February 7, Many Kinds of Rest. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Question. How does taking his yoke bring rest to our souls? This offer points to a personal dimension amid the much larger one of Jesus' mission to free people from the enemy. His words are actually adapted from Jeremiah, who promises people rest for their souls if they return to the religion of their fathers instead of the paganism of the surrounding nations, as we read in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. The concept of rest is very rich in Scripture. It starts with God himself. He rested when he finished his work of creation. His rest ushered in a Sabbath rest that was celebrated weekly. 
Rest was also celebrated through the year during the annual feasts. For example, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 31. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Every seven years in the Sabbath of the land in Exodus chapter 23, verse 11. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. And every fifty years in the Jubilee, when slaves were freed and debts were forgiven. Leviticus 25.10 And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Rest could be appreciated when God was present with his people, as in Exodus chapter 33, where there was neither adversary nor evil occurrence, as we read in 1 Kings 5.4, nor an enemy in Deuteronomy 25. Rest was enjoyed in the land that God gave his people in Joshua chapter 1, especially when the people returned from captivity and exile in Jeremiah 30. Rest was also shared in hospitality with strangers in Genesis 18 and enjoying stable family life in Ruth chapter 1 and Proverbs 29.17. However, rest is absent for God's people in captivity. Rest escapes the wicked, who like the troubled sea, cannot rest. The only rest that such people can look forward to is death and the grave, as expressed in Job in several places. Revelation 14.11 also has a powerful warning about rest for those on the wrong side of the great controversy in the last days. Revelation 14.11 And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The rest Jesus offers is a very generous package. It includes the gift of the Sabbath, allowing us time out with the Creator. Christ's offer of rest recognizes our lost condition and restores us in every way. And when we slip up, as we do, we still have the assurance of a place of rest at our Saviour's side. And so to finish today, what are ways, besides the Sabbath, that we can learn to enjoy the rest that God offers us? How do we find rest for our souls in Jesus? Let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 to finish today's study. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works.
Monday, February 8, Planting and Harvesting The great controversy theme is explicit in Jesus' parable of the sower. The listing of four types of responses to the gospel message indicates that there are more than just good and bad people in the world. Life is more complex than that, and so we need to be careful how we approach those who don't seem to respond to the gospel as we think they should. Question. Read Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 8, and then verses 18 to 23. In what ways can we so clearly see the reality of the great controversy revealed in this story? First of all, Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then verses 18 to 23. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The battle for souls is real and the enemy uses whatever means he can to turn people away from salvation. For instance, in the context of the seed falling by the wayside, Ellen White wrote in Christ's Object Lessons, page 44, Satan and his angels are in the assemblies where the gospel is preached. While angels of heaven endeavour to impress hearts with the word of God, the enemy is on the alert to make the word of no effect. With an earnestness equalled only by his malice, he tries to thwart the work of the Spirit of God. While Christ is drawing the soul by his love, Satan tries to turn away the attention of the one who is moved to seek the Saviour. End of quote. One could ask, why couldn't the farmer be more careful and not waste seed by throwing it on the path? Why couldn't he be more diligent in digging up the rocks? Why didn't he pull more weeds? When sowing gospel seed, human effort is always limited. We must sow everywhere. We are not the judge of what is good and bad soil. The appearance of weeds simply indicates that we are just unable to prevent evil from springing up in the least expected places. It is the Lord of the harvest working in the background who ensures that all who can be saved will be saved. We do our job 
and must learn to trust him to do his. And so to finish the day, what are ways we can see the reality of this parable? Why do we sometimes see people just newly baptised walk out the door? Or others who simply show no interest at all? Or those who become firmly grounded in the faith? Tuesday, February 9, Building on Rock The issue of where we stand in the cosmic struggle that unfolds around us is made more personal in the parable of the man building a house on the rock. Question. Read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. What is so frightening about this parable? Matthew 7, beginning at verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What comes to mind when you imagine this story? Where is the rock, and where is the sand? For some people, sand is found only at the beach. But this story is probably not about a seaside residence. The more likely place is among the gentle rolling hills upon which most villages were located, at the side of a valley somewhere. Jesus described two houses, one built just on the surface while the other has foundations going down to bedrock. As we read in Luke 6.48, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. There is no way to tell the difference between the two completed houses until it rains up in the hills and a flash flood roars down the valley. For one of the home builders that is not a problem, for the house is firmly anchored, but for the other there is a problem. Without a secure foundation, the house just built on the surface is easy prey to the swirling floodwaters. Jesus shared this parable because he knew how much we fool ourselves. There is a serious struggle going on, and unaided, we have no possibility of surviving it. Jesus has prevailed against evil, and that is why he is called the rock. This personal battle against evil can be won, but only if we build our lives firmly upon him. And we can build upon him only through obedience to him. 
Therefore, as it says in Matthew 7.24, Whosoever heareth these things of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. It's that simple. However much faith is a crucial component, faith without works, the Bible says, is dead. We read about that in James chapter 2, and we'll look at verses... 17, 20, and 26. Verse 17 of James chapter 2. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of of God. And in this parable we see just how dead it really is. And so to finish today we'll read Matthew chapter 7 verses 22 to 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Casting out demons in Jesus' name, or making prophecies in his name, all reveal some kind of faith held by these people. And yet, what was their fate? Ask yourself, upon what foundation is your house built? And how do you know the answer? Wednesday, February 10. Do not judge. Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount in the early days of his ministry. It was revolutionary. For starters, he told ordinary people that they were valued and blessed in the eyes of God, and that they were salt and light, two highly prized commodities. He spoke of the importance of God's law, yet warned of trying to impress others with their own good behaviour. Jesus further pointed out that morality is determined by what a person thinks, not just by his or her actions, although actions must be guarded as well. As one reads through the entire sermon, it can be seen that he covered the whole gamut of human existence and relationships. And that brings us to our question for today. Read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. In what ways is the reality of the great controversy revealed in these texts? That is, how is the interplay between good and evil manifested here? Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Judge not that ye be not judged. 
Do not think yourself better than other men, Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 314, and set yourself up as their judge. Since you cannot discern motive, you are incapable of judging another. In criticising him, you are passing sentence upon yourself. For you show that you are a participant with Satan, the accuser of the brethren. The Lord says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. This is our work. End of quote. When Jesus told his audience not to judge, he made two important points. The first is that the reason we judge others is because we do the very same thing we are condemning. We have the attention off ourselves and ensure that everyone around us is looking at the person we condemn rather than at us. The other point Jesus makes is that often the problem we see in our brother or sister is only a fraction of the size of our own problem, a problem that we may not even be aware of. It is so easy for us to see a piece of sawdust in their eye, but we are unable to see the great wooden beam in our own. So to finish today, what's the difference between judging a person and judging the rightness or wrongness of their actions? And why is that a very important distinction to make? Thursday, February 11, I am with you always. Matthew ends his gospel account with some of the most reassuring words Jesus spoke. Matthew 28:20 reads, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What should that mean to us in practical terms, in our own lives, in our own struggles, failures and disappointments, and even when we feel that God has let us down? It is interesting that Matthew commences his gospel with a similar words. After listing all the forebears and the account of an angel visiting first Mary, then Joseph, Matthew explains that the baby to be born would be called Emmanuel, God with us. God made the promise, I will be with you a number of times in Scripture. He promised to be with Isaac in Genesis 26, with Jacob in Genesis 28, with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, and with the children of Israel in Isaiah 41 and 43. The context of many of these references is during times of hardship and duress, when God's words would be most relevant. A parallel verse uses similar words in Hebrews 11, sorry, 13 verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just a few verses later it adds, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever in verse 8. This promise too is repeated a number of times. It actually comes from the occasion when Moses hands leadership over to Joshua. And that's recorded in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 and 8. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. 
and God repeats the phrase to Joshua after the death of Moses. I will not leave you nor forsake you in Joshua 1.5. When David passes on the kingdom to Solomon, he likewise tells Solomon that God will not leave nor forsake him in 1 Chronicles 28. Jesus, who never changes, who is always with us, gave strong assurance to our forefathers of the faith. They faced hardship and trial, or were about to embark on the greatest challenge of their life, yet they were assured of God's continued presence. To the Church of Christ at the end of time, these assurances are significant. Jesus' promise of being with us to the very end is in the context of making disciples by going, baptizing and teaching. So that is where the focus is, on the joy of rescuing people from ending up on the losing side in the great controversy. Friday, February 12. Author Leon Whistletier wrote about what he said was one of the saddest stories in the world. He told of an Englishman named S.B., who had been blind from birth. However, the good news was that at 52 years old, S.B. had a corneal transplant that gave him sight. For the first time in his life, S.B. was able to see. It must have been incredibly exciting for him to finally see the world that had unfolded all around him his whole life, but was literally out of sight. However, Whistletear then quotes the source in which she first read the story. S.B., said the author, found the world drab and was upset by flaking paint and blemishes. He noted more and more the imperfections in things and would examine small irregularities and marks in paintwork or wood, which he found upsetting, evidently expecting a more perfect world. He liked bright colours, but became depressed when the light faded. His depression became marked and general. He gradually gave up active living, and three years later, he died. Wow. Though hard to understand on one level, on another it's not. Our world is a damaged place. The great controversy has been raging here for about 6,000 years. A 6,000 year war is going to leave a lot of wreckage in its wake. And despite all our attempts to make this world better, the trajectory doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction. In fact, it's going to get only worse. That's why we need the promise of redemption, which comes to us only from Christ's victory in the great controversy, a victory secured at the cross and offered freely to us all. And that brings us to three important discussion questions for this week. One, what lessons can you take away for yourself from the story of S.B.? Two, as we saw in Tuesday's study, those who said, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and that in your name, were, as he said, believers in Jesus. At the same time, notice the emphasis of their response. Who were they focusing on? What were they focusing on? How does the answer here reveal why they were so self-deceived? And three, 
If you have a friend or family member doing something obviously wrong, how do you deal with this problem in a way that first isn't judgmental and second doesn't appear judgmental? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled The Great Controversy in the Drug Dealer's Home. Lewis belonged to a rock band in the Brazilian city of Jacuia. He and his friends often indulged in harmful drugs in their search for pleasure. One day, while in the home of a drug dealer, Lewis found a copy of The Great Controversy. After leafing hurriedly through the book, he asked permission to borrow it. Lewis found the subject intriguing. While he and his friends smoked marijuana, they took turns reading the book aloud to each other. Some of the guys liked what they read. Others did not. Floris Valdo, a spiritualist, especially enjoyed the book. One day, three of the friends climbed a hill, then sat down to smoke and read the Bible together with the great controversy. Suddenly, Floris Valdo began to shout, "'I don't want the Bible!' Recognising that Flores Valdo was possessed by an evil spirit, the other friend ran away in fright. But Lewis kept on reading. He paused only long enough to ask his friend to think on the name of Jesus. Soon the evil spirit left him. Realising that his friend needed help, Lewis persuaded Flores Valdo to go with him to a Seventh-day Adventist church. While there, both young men enjoyed a sermon preached by a lay member. Later they attended an Adventist youth camp, where they studied the Bible with other young people and gave themselves completely to Jesus. Unable to keep his new joy to himself, Lewis sent a copy of the great controversy to his cousin Thomas, a journalism student studying in the coastal city of Salvador. Being an avid reader, Thomas sped through the book with mounting interest. About halfway through he felt condemned because of his sinful life but he couldn't put down the book until he found out how the story ended. His conviction only intensified as he read the final chapters. When vacation time came, Thomas went to Jacaya to visit his cousin. Lewis told Thomas much about his new faith and took him to church. Gladly, Thomas accepted Jesus and his promise of forgiveness. But he now faced another conflict. His girlfriend was against his interest in religion. One night, while staying in the home of an aunt, Thomas dreamed he saw Jesus veiled in brilliant light. The next morning, Thomas gave his life completely to Christ. His habits changed, he broke up with his girlfriend, and began preparing for baptism. Lewis rejoiced to see his cousin and several members of his rock band baptized. Ten people were baptized as a result of the working of the Holy Spirit through a copy of the great controversy found in the home of a drug dealer. Today, Floris Valdo, the former spiritualist, serves God as a literature evangelist, and Thomas became a Seventh-day Adventist minister. That story comes from Neville Gorski, the former director of education in the South American division. 
This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.